a boy with a rash, a concerned mother, the internet, and a lack of medical knowledge all combined in the early noughties to create the phenomenon known as Morgellons disease. For some, it's a nefarious condition where colored fibers appear under your skin causing chronic pain, possibly placed there on purpose by evil forces. For most in the healthcare industry, it's a mental delusion that is transmitted from person to person by reading about it on the internet. We'll look at what Morgellons disease, as it's known, is, where it comes from, and what exactly is going on here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. You can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, And along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Under Under My my Skin, skin. Morgellons Disease. Around nine in the evening on a summer's eve in 2001, two-year-old Drew Lytow gets out of bed, goes to his mother Mary, points to his lip, and says, Bugs. The boy's been having skin problems and itching for some time, so she rubs a cream she's been using on the spot, and as she's doing so, a sort of long, thin fiber comes out, apparently from under his skin. And then another fiber. Now, she'd been a medical researcher at hospitals in the Boston area before becoming a stay-at-home mom, and she had a microscope at home, kind of, a really, really cheap one. Basically, it was a $10 toy that her son played with. But she used this to look at one of the fibers under magnification, and it looked, well, artificial, like black, blue, and red strands of ribbon-like fiberglass or something. She cleans the boy's lip, but later, The fibers are back again and again and again. It seems as if they're coming from inside her son somehow, being forced to the surface as his body attempts to reject the artificial substance, whatever it is. As weird as what it is, her husband Edward, who's an internist, also thinks it's weird. So she hits the internet on a message board about scabies, one of the possible things that's been going on with her son before the strange fibers showed up. She comes across some posts about something similar with the scary warning that this might in fact indicate something truly dire, a precursor to a total breakdown of the boy's nervous system and brain functions that resembles chronic fatigue syndrome, but is something much more mysterious and much, much worse. Well, yikes! Her son's symptoms seem awfully close to what's being talked about on this internet forum, but the fibers are a new twist. She begins to think that maybe she has discovered a new disease. Hitting more websites like an internet ninja, she comes across references to a document titled Letter to a Friend, 
written sometime in the mid to late 1600s by an Englishman living in the Languedoc region of France, describing a condition in which black hairs, as he calls them, seem to be worming their way from under the skin of children in the area, followed by coughs and convulsions. He says the local Frenchies call it the Morgellons. This might be his English-speaking misunderstanding of the French word masculon, which comes from another word that means the hook at the end of a spindle. Later researchers think Brown was reporting hearsay mixed with his own speculations and misunderstandings of the local variant of French. So even back in the 1600s, this topic was fraught with subjective inaccuracies combined with complete faith in one's own ability to rationalize. There's also another reference to worms, quote-unquote, coming out of children called Dracontia by locals in an earlier book called On Diseases of Infants, written in 1574. These worms are described as being like putrefying cheese and were thought at the time to be sort of a putrefaction of internal humors that then became living worms back then. Worms were thought to spontaneously grow out of the dirt, so why couldn't they also do that in children's bodies? Such was the medical science of the 1500s. While Mary decides this is something similar to what's happening to her son. Not black hairs exactly and not cheesy worms, which she actually didn't know about that yet, but fibers made of some artificial substance. So she does what any self-respecting parent would do and she starts a website in 2002. Taking the name from that Englishman's letter to a friend written in the 1600s, she calls it the Morgellons Research Foundation, the MRF, and she begins to document the continued profusion of colored fibers emerging from her son. And two years later, she actually registers MRF as a nonprofit. Other web crawlers start to become interested and they write that they too have red and blue and black fibers coming out of themselves or from beneath the skin of loved ones. Mary hoped real medical professionals and scientists would help her bring to light this strange but dangerous illness. She went to multiple doctors. A dermatologist said the boy had eczema and prescribed an ointment, but it didn't help and the fibers kept on coming. A local pediatrician named Michael Frank said that while he can't seem to find any underlying cause, the medical field can sometimes be a bit too conservative and dismissive of supposed new medical issues. He was thinking, of course, of Polly Murray, a housewife from Connecticut who had a series of unusual symptoms and was routinely dismissed as, quote, hysterical by male doctors that she went to. Well, it turned out she had something that had not been identified before, now called Lyme's disease. So Frank referred Mary to a pediatrician at Johns Hopkins, Fred Heldrick, who was well known for solving unusual children's medical cases. Heldrick found nothing unusual at all, but he thought that Mary could use some psychiatric evaluation and support and thought maybe she was using whatever was going on with her son as a tool for gaining authority, control, and sympathy. Well, this was certainly not the answer Mary was hoping for. Plus, what about all those people now contacting her over the web saying they too have unexplained red and blue fibers growing out of their bodies? She emails and talks on the phone with distraught people who feel at a loss as to what to do, especially when it's happening to their kids. Like the Texas woman who had sores with fibers on her skin and was convinced she had tiny insects crawling around beneath the surface, she could feel them, so she poured lighter fluid all over them and was stopped at the last minute from setting herself on fire. Or the grieving mother whose son killed himself because he couldn't take the pain anymore and doctors kept telling him that no, he did not have tiny fibers and or bugs living under his skin. Mary came across hundreds and hundreds of tragic stories such as these. 
She later says that she thinks 4,500 people in the U.S. suffer from Morgellons disease, but the medical establishment just dismisses it. Now, there's no doubt these people are in distress. As one dermatologist put it, quote, it's psychiatric. Other doctors in various fields, who sometimes have their offices swarmed with people all claiming to have Morgellons, report how these people become extremely agitated and even angry when it's suggested that maybe they need a mind doctor instead of a medical one. But not all doctors, however. Greg Smith, a pediatrician in Georgia, claims to have Morgellons himself. A medical facility uses Morgellons patients as sort of human guinea pigs for various untried treatments, once they sign the appropriate waivers, of course. One doctor thinks that people who claim Morgellons may have Borrelia bacteria, which causes problems with people's immune systems. It's a causative agent in Lyme's disease. He claims that when he gives a sufferer certain antibiotics, the symptoms always go away. Things continue like this until July 2004 when Mary's husband, Andrew's father, dies suddenly from heart arrhythmia complications. Just a few days later, her two teenage children are now also exhibiting signs of Morgellons. They itch and are in pain constantly and are totally lethargic and drained of all energy. Their schoolwork suffers and extracurricular activities become a distant memory. Beside herself and worried for her three children, she decides to move the family to South Carolina, hoping a change of pace and warmer weather will alleviate the symptoms. And yet... An assistant professor of pharmacology and physiology at the University of Oklahoma named Dr. Randy Wymore comes across the MRF website and reaches out to Mary. He thinks the fibers she and others are describing must surely come from someplace outside the human body because, I mean, you know, how on earth would they get inside? So he starts gathering together all sorts of fibers from all sorts of different sources, and then he gets Morgellons people to send him samples of the fibers they say are coming out of their bodies, and he compares them. He determines that first off, the fibers are inert. They are not living, squirming things, as some sufferers claim they are. They look like many of the textile fibers he's collected, but he needs better equipment, so he contacts friends at the Tulsa Police Department, and they analyze the fibers, comparing them to a database of 800 different sample types and they find no matches. Mary, her kids, and a handful of other Morgellons folks go to Tulsa to be examined in person. Wymore and two other doctors immediately find fibers underneath unbroken skin. Say, maybe this is really something real, they think. People who say they have Morgellons deteriorate over time. At this stage in things, Drew is now sleeping with his eyes stuck half open. He also sweats whenever he is in the sun, and the sweat makes his sores burn and hurt. Mary's teenagers have swollen joints and cannot concentrate. They have trouble remembering things, and they're tired all the time. They school at home as much as the law allows. Reports of Morgellons starts coming in from outside of the U.S., mainly Australia and Europe. CNN, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and Nightline all do segments on it. The Washington Post writes about it, as does New Scientist. Then singer Joni Mitchell says in 2010 that she has Morgellons. She claims it altered her appearance in strong light and that the fibers are, quote, not animal, vegetable, or mineral, and that it is a, quote, slow, unpredictable killer, where exactly she's getting all this information is unknown. But that's what she said. After quite a lot of people been bothering them about it and more media outlets looking for something to say on the topic, the CDC formed a task force to look into Morgellons. They determined it to be a syndrome, meaning it's not acknowledged as something really real yet. They note that most doctors say it is a delusional infestation. 
A few others think there might be an underlying physical element, like maybe an infectious process in skin cells. They also mention a few doctors think that there could be a connection to the Borrelia spicrochetus bacteria. However, they find no evidence the problem is caused by any sort of infestation or by parasites. The fibers they examine from 115 Morgellons people turn out to be cotton. They know that most sufferers are middle-aged white women, often stay-at-home mothers who had some sort of a career before putting it on hold, and those women's children. They also know that the vast majority of so-called cases are self-diagnosed. The whole thing really does seem to be a delusion, wherein fairly commonplace sores that can occur from a variety of sources, rubbing, scraping against something, and so on, get small cotton fibers stuck to them, and then the delusion kicks in, and people think the fibers are coming out of their own bodies. The Mayo Clinic and other reputable medical organizations say that, look, just because there may not actually be an underlying physical cause, and that's only a maybe, that doesn't mean the suffering these people feel is not genuine. They recommend people who know sufferers be supportive and keep an open mind. And let's face it, therapy really kind of benefits everybody anyway, right? So maybe encourage the sufferer to seek psychological support from professionals. But just keep in mind that when you suggest that to them, they almost always become agitated and angry and sometimes even aggressive. Again, none of this is what Mary wanted to hear. So finally, in 2012, she closed up shop on the Morgellons Research Foundation and now tells people to contact Oklahoma State University directly, who continue to investigate. What those earlier doctors thought about young Drew's case was that it was a result of a factitious disorder imposed on another or an FDIA, which also used to be called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Straight up Munchausen syndrome is when someone pretends to be ill and may even provoke supposed symptoms in themselves in order to gain sympathy and attention. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when someone does that to another person. It's almost always a parent or other caregiver doing it to a child, and it is classified as both a psychological disorder and as child abuse. Where all this stems from is not really known, though it may have something to do with certain complications during pregnancy and birth, when it's the mother doing it to their own child. It's also been noted that early childhood victims of FDIA, which is now the preferred term, will often repeat that pattern of abuse with children now in their care or children of their own as the targets. 93% of the time, the abuser is a woman in a power position over the child or children, though in such cases where a male is present, he is often distant or removed or otherwise not engaged and or powerless. Some famous cases of FDIA or Munchausen by proxy include... In 1991, Beverly Allett, a nurse in Lincolnshire, England, killed four children between seven weeks and 15 months old and injured nine more between two months and six years old by injecting them with large doses of insulin and in at least one case, a large air bubble. She would do this in secret and then they would suffer and then she would come in and help them. In 1996, American Kathy Bush, who had 40 surgeries performed on her daughter before the girl was eight, and who was so convincing before her arrest that then First Lady Hillary Clinton visited her and swore she'd help reform America's medical system to help people like Kathy Bush. And then it came out that the only problem with Kathy Bush's daughter was Kathy Bush. 
In 2010, Lisa Hayden Johnson of Devon, England, who at various times claimed her son had cerebral palsy, diabetes, food allergies, and cystic fibrosis, had 325 medical actions performed on the boy, who, it turned out, was perfectly healthy, apart from these unnecessary medical interventions. In 2014, Lacey Spears, a 26-year-old mother north of New York City, fed her son enormous amounts of salt and then sought sympathy from people on social media. The five-year-old's brain swelled and he died. In 2015, the weird and drawn-out story of Dee Dee Blanchard, who subjected her daughter Gypsy to an astonishing number of medical procedures and restrictions, claiming, for example, that she was allergic to sugar and other things that aren't medically possible, as well as that she suffered from real problems like muscular dystrophy and eventually even cancer. Miss Blanchard got a lot of sympathy and money from her daughter's varied but ongoing, quote, medical issues, appearing on TV shows, fundraisers, and the like. This went on for Gypsy's entire childhood and became the primary source of income for the family until at age 15, Gypsy and a boyfriend she had in secret killed Mother Dee Dee to make it all stop. This story has been written about and dramatized at length, probably the best one of those being the 2019 Hulu miniseries The Act, starring Patricia Arquette, who won a Golden Globe and an Emmy, and Joey King, who was nominated for an Emmy in two powerhouse performances. American writer Julie Gregory wrote an autobiography about her own experiences on the receiving end of FDIA called Sickened, the Memoir of a Moonchilden by Proxy Childhood. And hip-hop artist Eminem has also spoken out about his own childhood experiences as an FDIA victim, notably in the 2002 song Cleaning Out My Closet. And of course, the critically acclaimed novel and miniseries Sharp Objects is also about this Munchausen by proxy. There have also been FDIA cases perpetrated against animals, but this is much rarer. Almost always, it is a woman doing it to her children or children in her care. Now, you have to keep in mind that people who are doing this are not necessarily evil or anything. This is a, an actual recognized mental disorder. The really unfortunate thing here is that one person's mental illness directly impacts the well-being of another's. Sometimes the FDIA occurs at least in part because of a parent's conspiracy notions. Like anti-vax parents who feel that their beliefs, oh, I'm sorry, totally clear-headed apprehension of the situation, requires them to be extra vigilant, micromanaging every moment of their child's lives in order to prevent them from doing something awful to the child. And since a lot of anti-vax people also buy into various quack cures and nonsense nutritional information, their kids may find themselves unwitting test subjects in just how much colloidal silver a young person can ingest. On the flip side, there have been cases of wrongful accusations and even convictions of FDIA. Sometimes this is just because this is the way our justice system works, and sometimes it's from a personal vendetta, one citizen to another or a child to a parent, the claim being made when in fact abuse did not occur, and even occasionally the direct result of a feud between a doctor or a patient, or the parents of a child patient being just rude and pushy, and then the doctor gets mad at them and drops in an FDIA diagnosis, and well, and then things get pretty messy after that. This has actually happened on more than one occasion, and it is a hot mess for everyone involved. 
Parents of children with disabilities, especially children with autism, are sometimes falsely accused by so-called warriors out there in the world and QAnoners who think that they detect child abuse when actually the child in question has a real problem and is being cared for quite well by a parent trying to cope with a difficult situation. When Munchausen is against the self, well, it's really just you who suffers. Twice, really. Once from the mental delusion and once from injecting yourself with bleach or whatever you're doing. There's even a thing called Munchausen by internet. This is when people using an online space will pretend to have this affliction or that one or be the victim of violence even though nothing of the kind is true. This started showing up even in the early 1990s, near the very start of the internet, before there were even web browsers. Some people refer to this as Cyber Munch, from a mispronunciation of Munchausen, and people who do it as Cyber Munchers. Cyber munchers will often go much further afield than just their own circle of friends. In fact, those people know that person A doesn't really have cancer or whatever, and so the munchers have to go elsewhere to strangers. Often they clog up medical and health websites and forums asking for advice from professionals for things that they are lying about. While this may seem harmless enough and more than just a little bit sad, these doctors and nurses only have so many hours of the day to help people who actually need it, and so this is a drain of that resource. It also erodes trust in those online medical spaces. Why should a hospital maintain an online chat or forum for people if that much of the web traffic is fictitious? More than one medical facility has closed down its online portals because it is swarmed with nonsense. And other people using the online space seeking offering real help then feel silly because they were duped by someone and pretty soon they start distrusting everyone. More often than not, when a muncher has been discovered in an online forum, the whole thing breaks down very quickly and ends up getting shut down for good. And some munchers go even further, faking their own deaths online, often while using an account or login not in their real name. The Russian-owned social media service LiveJournal back in 2004 looked into all the claims of deaths on their website and concluded that only 10% were actually people who died. And then there's a case that sort of combines all of it. Steve Leary in Sydney, Australia claimed he gave in and allowed his seven-year-old son, Lachlan, to get a COVID vaccine. Dad claimed the boy, upon returning home, had a fever and was short of breath. Both parents took Lachlan to the hospital where he was tested for five hours, but nothing terribly amiss was found, and so he was sent back home. Two days later, the boy collapsed, not breathing at all. An ambulance was called, but it was too late. Lachlan had died of a massive heart attack brought on by the COVID vaccine. However, none of that was true. No, zero deaths of children after receiving vaccines were reported anywhere in Sydney or anywhere in Australia, certainly not during this time period in question. And no boy named Lachlan Leary had died in Sydney from a heart attack or any other cause. But the story spread on social media just the same and even got picked up by some, quote, news websites. This is just one of many such hoax COVID killed my baby claims. An email circulated around, yes, there are still chain emails, about a 12-year-old Dutch student named Tom Van Dijk who died from the Pfizer vaccine. Tom Van Dijk was an actual Dutch person, 12 years old, and did in fact die. It's just that he had never received a COVID vaccine. 
A human piece of garbage named Steve Kirsch, a self-styled, quote, serial entrepreneur, made a blog post titled, They've now killed close to twice as many kids from the vaccine as have died from COVID, which made the rounds on social media and got snagged by Facebook nanny cop bots. He'd already been banned from Twitter just a couple weeks before, but people shared it from their own accounts. He followed that days later with another claim chock full of pseudoscience and bad statistical analysis, and then he finally got booted off LinkedIn. PolitiFact rates his stuff pants on fire wrong. Since as of December 21st, 2021, there had been only nine adult deaths linked with the J&J jab and blood clots and exactly zero, count them zero, children. So twice as many kids dying from the vaccine as from COVID is quite simply just not true. It is interesting to note that Steve Kirsch had originally started out funding COVID vaccine research when it was all still in development, but then he divested himself selling his interests and then became a massive spreader of vaccine disinformation. So factitious order imposed on another or Munchausen syndrome by proxy is what a lot of the doctors who heard Mary Leitao's tale and who examined young Drew thought was going on. It had been noted by someone or another, I can no longer find the source for this, but I remember reading it, that Drew had, yes, a blanket made from red and blue fabric, kind of like a flannel lumberjack shirt pattern inside. And it was almost certainly that was where the fibers Mary saw under her powerful Radio Shack toy microscope had come from. But no, she said, no, 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 no. They're coming from inside and they're either moving by themselves or they're being pushed out by tiny somethings, maybe insects living under her poor boy's skin. He says he can feel them and feel them moving and that it hurts a lot. The fact that her other two kids also suddenly developed this same unexplainable problem just after their dad died suddenly sort of adds fuel to the assessment that what's going on is psychological and stress related. But what about all the other people who say they have this problem? They too can feel bugs or something crawling under their skin. Is there some kind of epidemic of Munchausen by proxy or not? There's a mental disorder called delusional parasitosis or DP in which the sufferer becomes convinced they have either living or non-living pathogens inside of them, usually as bugs of some kind. They have the feeling of insects crawling beneath their skin, they scratch to relieve the irritation or pain, and then they open up real sores which then actually get infected. Or if we're looking at Morgellons, they get textile fibers stuck in them. In fact, some doctors consider Morgellons to be a subtype of delusional parasitosis or delusional infestation as it's sometimes known. You can also find it called Ekbom's syndrome. The cause of DP is not really known, though some evidence might point to too much dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which is a chemical that neurons make and send to other nerve cells. About 80% of the hormone activity in the brain comes from dopamine. Cocaine use increases dopamine production, and this is why another term for DP is cocaine bugs. Anemia might also be a contributing factor, or hypothyroidism, B12 deficiency, hepatitis, diabetes, HIV, and syphilis. Now, real DP is pretty rare, though it does seem to strike twice as many men as women, and the average age is 57. Most people diagnosed with DP are very resistant to treatment. They are absolutely convinced the sensations they're experiencing have an external cause, and just what the hell are you playing at, doctor? 
Again, sounds very similar to Morgellons people. Those that can be convinced to at least try some kind of treatment are given antidepressants along with cognitive therapy to help them identify when what they feel is coming from their own brain and when it isn't. Again, sufferers usually think it's bugs or some kind of worms or maybe a bacteria or a fungus or a mold. People with this often get a real bug bite or other damage to their skin and then the delusion sets in and becomes chronic. They'll start noticing other blemishes and imperfections, proof that they think the problem is spreading. They begin collecting evidence because yes, they know it sounds crazy, but there really are bugs, worms, molds, threads, whatever, crawling around underneath the skin, damn it. 50 to 80% of sufferers of this then bring the evidence they've collected to doctors. This is called a matchbox sign or a Ziploc sign, and the container that they bring in in question will have anything from bits of dirt to scabs to hairs to pieces of skin. They also take a lot of photographs of their skin. People with this often have other issues as well, like anxiety and depression. They often fall into substance abuse, alcohol, and other drugs, and find it hard to maintain jobs and relationships as the delusion becomes more insistent, and the doctors continue to tell them that no, there are no bugs or fungi or threads or worms in your skin. In 5 to 15% of the cases, the delusion spreads to others in the household and or close family members. This is called folie à deux, French for folly of two, and talked about in a previous episode about mass hysteria. There's also a modern offshoot of this called folie à internet, in which people start experiencing symptoms after encountering other supposed sufferers online. Again, this sounds a lot like Morgellons, and to some extent, it's a little understandable, at least in milder form. I mean, hell, just researching and writing and recording this section, I started to feel a little, well, itchy. In fact, I bet you are too, just listening to this. We are hardwired to take in and assimilate narratives. It's just that sometimes that mechanism goes haywire and goes too far. It becomes a pathology. It is not uncommon for people with some of these things to start to enter into a rather conspiratorial mindset, which means they then seek out information sources that reinforce those viewpoints and narratives, which means they are susceptible to charlatans and quacks making a fast buck off the gullibility and misfortune of others. Some websites that mention Morgellons also, surprise, 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 sell various cleanses they swear will detoxify your body. Not just juicing and drinking water flavored with cayenne and stuff like that, but ingesting products these non-medical people have assembled and packaged. Some are named to sound medical like Optifiber or Four Sigmatic, but others barely even try, making and marketing products called Warm Up and Scram. Those are real products, by the way. Naturally, sufferers are desperate to find an answer and stop these icky, creepy feelings, and so they buy this stuff and drink it down. A biological virus is structured information, DNA, that has only one purpose, to replicate, and the best strategy for that is to spread from host to host. The original meaning of the word meme was the same thing, but meaning information in the form of a narrative. It was noticed that physical viruses and certain ideas, jokes, rumors, urban legends, etc., spread through a population among the same distribution curve. The internet is the perfect place for meme viruses to spread.
We've already briefly mentioned a previous episode about mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness, to use the technical term. The fact that Morgellon spreads basically by reading about it on the internet makes it a weird postmodern mass hysteria kind of a thing. And the fact that there's this whole online ecosystem devoted to it reinforces it. Plus, there are folks who are happy to exploit Morgellons people to push their own conspiratorial notions, like a series of videos and social media posts claiming that wearing a face mask, as per most COVID safety guidelines and requirements, will actually infect you with the nefarious fibers that are the root cause of Morgellons. And some news services, lazy as hell and under enormous pressure to provide content, 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 frequently say that Morgellons disease is a medical term But it isn't. It was totally made up by Mary Lightow in 2001. Other news services say she's a biologist. She is not. And then there are medical people who say, well, maybe there really is something going on here. And it's crap that most doctors just dismiss it as delusional. At the very least, they say, this stigma prevents many serious people from looking into it. Oh, it's not a physical medical problem. It's a mental one. So get out of my examination room and go see a shrink. Dr. Omar Amin, director of the Parasitology Center in Arizona, went ahead and looked into it, stigma or no. He found no parasites of any kind, but he says the physical sensations people report are real because their nerves are damaged from some kind of a toxin or something. Maybe it's an allergic reaction. One patient named Stacy, he found, had a tooth filling that contained mercury, and it turns out that she has a rare allergy to mercury. So she went to a dentist, got the filling replaced with one that does not contain mercury, and voila, her, quote, Morgellons was cured. Incidentally, I know mercury is toxic, but it continues to be used in many types of dental filling, and the Dental Association says those fillings are safe, unless, like Stacy, you are allergic to mercury. To be fair, Stacy had a terrible rash and a series of small bumps all over her face, but she did not think textile-like fibers were squirming beneath her dermis. So even though that story was reported as possibly insight into Morgellons, Stacy did not have Morgellons specifically. Something similar, but if there are no fibers, it's not Morgellons. One way a virus can be more successful at spreading and replicating is if it can adapt along the way, defeating defense strategies that develop to prevent it from carrying out its single-minded purpose. This often holds true for bacteria and parasites as well. Conspiracy theories sometimes do the same, though their change strategy is usually more to assimilate elements from other conspiracy theories, news, science, and the world around them, selectively choosing this and that to add to their own narrative. Mary Lightow and some of the others who were advocating for Morgellons to be recognized as a real thing on their terms, meaning yes, you have to say that there are tiny fibers beneath the skin coming out, were all reminded of the story of Polly Murray, who I briefly mentioned earlier. This newlywed artist living at the edge of a forest near the town of Lyme, Connecticut, got pregnant and then began having fevers, painful swollen joints, and headaches. Once her first child was born, these symptoms continued and then spread to her husband and the baby. Three more children came out in due course and also suffered the same problems. As her children grew older, two of them had to use crutches because their knees were so swollen and they had almost constant pain coming from inside their joints. Well, doctors said either they didn't know what was going on or it was probably juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. While Molly was not a medical professional, but a cluster of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis seemed weird, 
Plus, she and her husband weren't juveniles, and other people in the area also started having the same symptoms. She and a few others continued to pester authorities, though. In 1975, she made a call to the state health department and finally found a sympathetic ear, mainly because, quite by chance, a totally different woman, unknown to Polly, had called just a few days earlier. After talking to this person at the health department, she was emboldened and soon started tracking down what would become the main focus of her life. So much so, in fact, that her marriage fell apart and she lost many of her friends. Other symptoms included a strange circular or oval rash with a red rash circle in the middle, kind of like a bullseye that was tender to the touch. Extreme fatigue was another symptom, as were high fevers, chills, and other things that seemed almost like a viral infection. These problems persisted for Polly and others for over 25 years off and on. Eventually, it was determined that this is all caused by the spiral-shaped Borrelia bacteria that like to live on ticks. When a tick is in its larval stage, it especially has a lot of these bacteria present, but even adults have them as passengers. So the tick bites a person and transfers the bacteria. This particular subset that caused these problems is a varied one. It has a lot of genetic diversity. Basically, there are 20 separate genome species and maybe more, with at least eight of them causing what would eventually become known as Lyme disease, named after the town Polly lived in. It is a bacterial condition, and so antibiotics usually work. Once it became more accepted by mainstream medicine, vaccines were developed as well, including a recent mRNA one that came out last year, partly as a result of all the funding that was poured into that technology to combat COVID. That mRNA Lyme disease vaccine is currently in animal testing trials. In 2019, the U.S. had 35,000 confirmed cases of Lyme disease, with most in the eastern part of the country, though cases have been reported in all 50 states. Some researchers think the warming climate will cause tick populations to explode and thus greatly increase the number of Lyme disease cases. Warmer climate also means the ticks can spread further north, and now cases have recently been found in Canada, where previously it had been too cold for the ticks to thrive. Cases have also been found in the UK, an estimated two to 3,000 a year, though many of those are thought to have been contracted by people who traveled to the US and then brought it home. A few cases have also been reported now in continental Europe, Asia, Africa, and even South America, though it seems to be pretty much a northern hemisphere problem, at least for now. Again, once it gets legitimized, serious people can look into it, and recent studies suggest that Lyme disease might actually have been around since the 1600s, at least, and one Scottish historian seemed to pick up a case of it in 1764 after visiting the Isle of Jura, also known as Deer Island, where he was probably bitten by a tick living on a deer. Some people think that maybe this is where the whole thing originated, since many people from this area of Scotland moved to North America right around the 1760s and 70s. So Lyme disease is real and it is spreading. And honestly, without Polly Murray and her tenacity, it might have taken a lot more time to identify it and start working on treatments and cures. So good on her. I think you can see the obvious parallels here with Mary and the Morgellons. Why, it just might be the same story all over again. New disease, woman dismissed by mainly male doctors, eventually to be vindicated. You just have to keep trying, be persistent, and make a nuisance of yourself. After all, it took Polly Murray 25 years to get any real traction. Or maybe you should just change your tactics a bit. 
The quack alt-medicine snake oil sales folks offer up all sorts of supposed treatments and cures for Lyme, like injecting the mental bismuth into your body, drinking colloidal silver, which is silver particles suspended in water, drinking or injecting hydrogen peroxide, which you should never do, breathing in lots and lots of pure oxygen, or even purposely infecting yourself with malaria because the high fever will kill the bacteria. By the way, don't do any any of those things ever. The point here being that even though Lyme is real, plenty of people will still try to exploit the public for profit and their 12 minutes of fame. Some people who have had Lyme disease claim that even though the doctors say, okay, the treatment's worked, you're all better now, they say, no, they're not. They still have pain and swelling and fatigue, and they want more antibiotics for a longer period of time. But the doctors will not give it to them because while antibiotics are good for wiping out a bacterial infection, they also wipe out most of the beneficial bacteria in your body. It's kind of the nuclear option. In some cases, doctors may find evidence of the still poorly understood chronic fatigue syndrome or the condition known as fibromyalgia, which may be caused by a combination of psychological stress and environmental factors. But no, none of that's what's going on, say some sufferers. We have what they call chronic Lyme disease, and they want antibiotics, and they want them now. Yeah, okay, sure. Mainstream medicine says there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease, but then they said that about regular Lyme disease, didn't they? So what do they really know? Even some doctors jump on this bandwagon and prescribe various things for these people and then, well, they get in trouble with the authorities. This has led to a weird alt-medicine underground of so-called Lyme-literate doctors who will secretly help sufferers of chronic Lyme disease, even though it's not really a thing. Some of these practitioners of pseudo-medicine lobby to have certain substances reclassified so that they can legally use them in their quack treatments. This practice has been called legislative alchemy by some lawyers. Various lawsuits have cropped up around all this, with some doctors getting their licenses revoked, shrill rhetoric, and then some politicians seeing an opening in our increasingly fractured public space and an opportunity to get their name in sound bites. In 2006, the AG of Connecticut said he was starting an investigation into the Medical Association Infectious Diseases Society of America, claiming members there had conflicts of interest that encouraged them to ignore claims of chronic Lyme disease. But in the end, no charges were brought. So then he started pressuring scientists to see things his way about changing the official guidelines of what is and isn't Lyme disease. In 2009, the state started allowing physicians to go ahead and prescribe long-term antibiotic use if they think they have detected a case of chronic Lyme disease. And then other states started following suit. However, most people in the know say that the AG of Connecticut doesn't believe in chronic Lyme disease. He just knows that enough people in his constituency do. In the meantime, serious researchers continue to get harassed and, yes, even receive death threats by those who seek to politicize the whole chronic Lyme disease topic. This sort of thing gets fueled by online forums and conspiracy websites and things like the 2008 film Under Our Skin, The Untold Story of Lyme Disease by Andy Wilson, who has self-diagnosed himself with chronic Lyme disease and more. For some, having some long-term variant of Lyme is becoming more of an identity than anything medical, and as such, is then subject to psychological and sociological pressures, as mentioned in an article in The Cut titled, What Happens When Lyme Disease Becomes an Identity? And then there are those who think Lyme disease was manufactured on the Plum Island Research Facility off the tip of Long Island, not far from Montauk. 
This and many other kooky ideas about that place were talked about in an earlier episode about the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment. Alt-medicine woo quack and conspiracy dude Jeffrey Renz talks a lot about Plum Island and Lyme disease, trying to tie in a New World Order slash Third Reich resurgent narrative, and yet he's also a rabid anti-Semi, as well as link Plum Island and Lyme to autism and, wait for it, more gallons. Fueled by people like Jeff Rentz, and always with the brave story of Polly Murray and mine, Morgellons folks have gone to a lot of weird places in their search for the truth, provided that the truth they find isn't that they have a form of delusional parasitosis. Some people blame GMOs and companies that make GMOs, like Monsanto. We eat genetically modified food, and then these fibers grow inside of us, but they They just just don't don't care. Or maybe, maybe they're infecting the populace on purpose. Chemtrails get a lot of blame from conspiracy people who hate chemtrails. The idea is, it seems, that one of the many, many things commercial airlines working on behalf of the evil secret government drop on ground dwellers is these tiny little fibers that then burrow into your skin and wreak havoc. A variant of this is that the fibers are not textiles at all, but are nanobots created in a super-secret high-tech lab. This lab might be human, or it might be alien. Alien. Or maybe these are the larval form of an alien species with Morgellon sufferers, the unwilling hosts. Maybe they're tiny bombs or mind-control devices just waiting to be activated. Maybe they're making men gay and women sterile in an effort to depopulate the planet. I mean, honestly, once you get into the whole they're doing it on purpose mindset, paranoia sets in pretty quickly. Many people who self-diagnose that they have more gallons, which is almost all of them, start behaving very differently, becoming convinced their phones are tapped and that they're being watched or followed. It is not uncommon for them to essentially become reclusive, agoraphobic, cutting off most human contact. They continue to use the internet to find support groups of fellow sufferers, however, and often fall prey to unscrupulous jerkheads who sometimes just tack more gallons onto a long list of things their overpriced alt-medicine can cure or even come up with more gallon-specific marketing ploys. One website, selling herbal remedies for lupus, among others, claims that they've discovered, from a highly placed source who wishes to remain secret, that the name Morgellons comes from the term mutated arthropoids or Morgan's bugs made in a lab that are part biological and part machine and part engineered mold. They also call the threads they find e-fibers. And of course, they sell products made by Precision Herbs, which claims to kill all parasites, including these mold bacteria robots. And so guess what? They have a cure. How do they do it? Wow, they balance natural herbs in the perfect way to detect and neutralize parasitic energy signatures. Uh, okay. okay. They also claim their products kill nanobacteria, which they say are smaller than one nanometer long. Even though the smallest ever detected bacteria is 600 nanometers long, there are no bacteria that small. But none of this dissuades people from buying their crap. 
Quackmeister Hulda Clark thinks that all diseases, even cancer, are caused by parasites. And if you drink her herbal concoctions, which she has for sale, and then use her specially made electrical devices, including one called the zapper, to shock yourself with low levels of voltage, then you can kill those little critters off and cure yourself of any and all diseases. Needless to say, she got into trouble with the American authorities, so she moved to Tijuana, Mexico. As with so many things, Morgellons has become another item for people to add to their proof piles regardless of what it is they're actually trying to prove. Medical sociologist Robert Bartholomew calls Morgellons a socially transmitted disease that most people seem to get by reading about on the internet. So what is actually going on? It's probably a combination of things that get lumped into this term Morgellons, a term I hasten to remind you that was made up by a stay-at-home mom in 2001. Some cases may be Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy. Probably the majority of them are a form of delusional parasitosis. Some may be actual allergies, or they might even be Lyme disease itself, mis-self-diagnosed. This may all start sounding a bit like the character Chuck McGill in the early seasons of Better Call Saul, who thought he was allergic to electricity, which of course he wasn't because no one is. And yet, there are people out there who legitimately think they are allergic to electricity. What the thinker thinks, the prover proves. That is how our minds work. And though we in the Western tradition have long held a separation of mind and body, the fact is they are not separate things, but two parts of one very complex interdependent system. There's a whole range of things that fall under the term somatic symptom disorder, in which a wholly mental cause manifests itself in actual physical ways. But we often dismiss mental things as not real and just get over it, as Ron DeSantis recently said about his stupid math textbooks ban, it doesn't matter how you feel. Well, it actually does. Mind and body are one, each affecting the other. We just sometimes can't see the forest for the trees because we're too close to something. And this is especially true if we're in discomfort or pain. And make no mistake, many of the people who say they have more gallons are in actual physical pain. At the very least, that much scratching and other attempts to alleviate the problem actually damages their nerve endings, shifting the cause now from mental to physical. Just like Chuck in Better Call Saul who changed his entire life around his supposed ailment. Yeah, okay, it was all in his head, but he didn't know that and he took very drastic steps to deal with it. People who say they have this may act unreasonably or aggressively, but they are to be sympathized with rather than shunned. Shouting, it's all in your head, is pointless. I mean, everything is all in your head. Even your interactions with the physical world are actually experienced entirely in your head. As an article about Morgellons on the Mensa website with the awesome title of Common Threads says, quote, delusional parasitosis or not, morgies deserve empathy. Morgies, people who have Morgellons. This is especially true if a person you know suddenly starts talking about threads and fibers beneath their skin. You can create a support system for them in their real life and try to help them that way. If you don't, they will just go online where it's very possible they quote caught it from to begin with and they'll get the support and affirmation they need there. 
but then that just reinforces their thinking, making them entrench in their opinions and their attitudes. And then they might fall prey to one of the many online predators who'd like to sell them ground up mushrooms mixed with dirt and powdered metal for $100 a jar or get them to inject themselves with hydrogen peroxide. And then their troubles really will begin. But by then, it would be too late to help them. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.